0: Please remain standing and turn to Matthew chapter 27. As you're turning to Matthew chapter 27, we looked basically at verses 38 through 44 in Matthew 27 last week. Looking at really the fulfilling of prophecy of Psalm 22 with the mocking and the taunting of things that we even read in Psalm 22 this morning. But also as the first of two sermons, today will be the second, of looking at the sayings of Christ... And last week we saw the first four of those. This week we'll look at the last three. And we'll pick up where we left off last week. Let's begin at verse 45 in Matthew 27. And we'll read through verse 53. Please hear the word of God in Matthew 27, starting verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama, sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there, when they heard that, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. And we think from John 19, Jesus at this point says, I thirst. And so immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus, in verse 50, cried out again with a loud voice, which is where he says, it is finished. And yield up his, his spirit, which then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This is the word of God. May God by his Spirit teach us and convict us according to his will this morning. You may be seated. As I'd said last week, we began our look at the seven sayings of Christ from the cross with the first four, not necessarily the first four in order, but certainly the first four that seemed to make the most sense logically. And We saw that after Christ was crucified and the criminals were crucified on either side of him, in the midst of the mocking and the reviling of the crowd, and even the criminals joined in to revile Christ, and that was fulfilling Psalm 22, Our merciful Savior, our merciful Savior said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, as recorded in Luke chapter 23. Then I think in part response to Jesus' prayer, and by the grace and mercy of our God, one criminal then turns to the other and rebukes him, because he was blaspheming Jesus. And he expressed the fear of God, and he confesses his sin and his deserved condemnation, not from earthly magistrates, but his deserved condemnation from god and that one criminal apprehended the mercy of god in christ by confessing jesus as his sinless lord and that criminal trusted his soul to christ by asking to be remembered by him in his kingdom which means after death remember me in your kingdom and then the second saying from the cross then from our merciful savior was assuredly i say to you today you will be with me in paradise And then we turn to John chapter 19 last week and John records then that Jesus from the cross saw his earthly mother standing next to the disciple John. And he then displayed not just that he was a merciful savior, but he displayed the son's perfect humanity in his compassion and his obedience to the law of God, even at this point, because he turns to his mother, he says, woman, behold, your son, he turns to John, he says, behold, your mother. So that even in his dying, in his greatest trial, he's fulfilling the law of God and caring for his earthly mother and giving honor even to his parents. And that would be the third saying from the cross. But then lastly, last week, because we were in John chapter 19, it made sense to go ahead and look at the fourth one. But I think it was actually the fifth one in order. We'll see that even today. But John then explains how Jesus shows his perfect humanity by expressing, I thirst. That the Son of God was the Son of Man who would thirst and have a parched throat. In his deity, John explains that Christ knew that all had now been accomplished. And yet there's one more scripture that needs to be fulfilled from Psalm 69, verse 21. Which then he says in response, I thirst. And he requested something for his parched dry throat at that time that he might receive something, even though he received a mocking sour wine with vinegar given to him. But for God's glory, he used that to prepare him in his earthly dry throat to proclaim, it is finished. And So we see Christ from last week as a man, he wore the shame of nakedness and the curse of thorns of the first Adam. And he thirsted as a man, but with the saving thirst to satisfy death and hell in our place, that we might be satisfied in him and never be thirsty. And so today, and there's an outline in your bulletin, and there's maybe more details than usual, but it might help you to to keep track of where we are. We'll be looking at the final three sayings. The first saying we'll be looking at is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we'll look to, it is finished, and then, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I think the emphasis last week was the merciful Savior of Christ and the Son's humanity. I think the emphasis this week with these final three sayings would be Christ's atonement as our sovereign Redeemer, the sovereign Redeemer's atonement. And we'll look mainly at the wrath absorbed by our Savior in Matthew chapter 27. We'll look then at the redemption accomplished by our Savior in John chapter 19. And then the restoration assured, going back to Luke chapter 23. That'll be our general outline, and you can see some more details if you look in your bulletin to see those. So first, as we've just read, we'll look at Matthew chapter 27, and specifically verses 45 through 50, which we just read. But look at verse 45, as we look at the wrath absorbed. The wrath absorbed in verse 45, we read, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. There was darkness over all the land. That's kind of odd. According to Mark chapter 15, Jesus was crucified on the third hour, which we assume is around 9 a.m. These are not electronic clocks, but these are roundabout times. So it's about 9 a.m. that Christ was crucified. And so from the sixth to the ninth hours means from noon to 3 p.m. How often do you have darkness, utter darkness? And all of the land from noon to 3 p.m. So this is not expected. There's something going on here. It means something. So the, the question might be, what's the purpose of there being darkness on the land for three hours at the apex, at the crux of the crucifixing, crucifixion of Christ? Well, I think there's three things. There's three things, at least. We'll see that there's judgment, there's horror and torment, but there's also a sense of hiding in this darkness. And first of all, the judgment in Scripture, judgment is often symbolized by darkness. It's represented by darkness. And this darkness on the cross represents the judgment being poured out on Jesus for the sins of his people. It's the judgment of the Father for the sins of his people being poured out on the Son in these three hours on the cross. And I think this was hinted at, if not prophesied, in Amos chapter 8 verses 9 and 10 where we read and it shall come to pass in that day says the Lord God in Amos chapter 8 that I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight and I will turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lamentation and I'll make it like mourning for an only sun and its end like a bitter day and here on the cross The judgment of God upon the sins of his people is being poured out on Christ as he's propitiating the wrath of God. And Christ in three short hours is drinking the cup of righteous wrath from the Father, absorbing the judgment of the sum total of wrath stored up for all of the sins of his people. A judgment that if it was just one person would take an eternity and it would never run dry. And Christ takes this for all of his people in three hours... So the darkness represents judgment. I think a second thing is this darkness represents the horror and torment that Christ is experiencing. In fact, I think the darkness not only represents the horror and torment, it even adds to the horror and torment that Christ is bearing at this time. Have you ever been stuck someplace when it's been pitch dark? and you you lose track of where you are, and you don't know how to get out. You read stories of those brave souls who like to go exploring in caves where there's no light, and they get disoriented. Maybe they get stuck. They're in a small area, and the terror that occurs to someone, maybe you're young, and maybe your brother was mean to you, and he turned off all the lights while you're in the basement, and you ah! But the terror and the horror of darkness is that sort of a thing. And I think here, this darkness is representing this and even adding to the terror and the torment of Christ, because his spiritually suffering, suffering the wrath of God for his people is what caused Jesus earlier in the garden to sweat great drops of blood in anticipation of what he was going to go through. We've said often it's the physical suffering of Christ was immense, but it's nothing compared to the spiritual suffering. In fact, the physical suffering points towards the immense spiritual suffering that Christ went through. We're not to be uh, emphasizing the physical suffering, but it's the spiritual suffering that is the key. Hell itself is described as outer darkness. The torments and horror of hell itself is described as outer darkness. In Matthew chapter 8, in Matthew chapter 22, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus describes hell as outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and unquenchable fire and unquenchable darkness. And so there's a sense where hell came to Calvary that day as the Savior, in a sense, descended into it and bore the horrors of the wrath of God, the hell in our place. With God's wrath burning itself in the very heart of Jesus, So that he as our substitute would suffer the most intense and indescribable agonies in our place. The sinless one becoming sin for us and bearing our wrath. The joy is though that just as Christ experienced the unquenchable thirst of hell. So that we might never be thirsty. Christ experienced the horror of darkness of hell so that we might become the children of light. And we rejoice in Christ and we praise him for it. So the wrath absorbed with the darkness displayed, I think it represents the judgment. It represents the horror and the torment. I think lastly, this might be a little bit of a stretch, just a little bit of a warning, but I, I, I think there's something to this. I think the darkness that the Father places over all the land, it's a hiding, a hiding of his Son, a covering for his Son. I think it somehow expresses the love of the Father to cover his Son, a blanketing of the land with darkness for three hours while the Son is suffering in a vile way for the vile sins of his people. It's as if the horror is so great and the shame is so vile that the Father then hid it from view so it would not be so easy to be looked upon with the darkness of judgment and horror and torment, but yet even a sense of hiding. Well, then we look at verse 46 as we're looking about the wrath absorbed. In verse 46 and that follows, and about the ninth hour, this is after the three hours are over, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so where the the darkness is perhaps difficult, why the darkness? There's also a sense, the Son is saying, why have you forsaken me? To the Father, who they have perfect fellowship and perfect love between them. How does this work? What does this mean? Why you forsaken me? Well, I think, There's probably three things, at least here, that we'll look at. The first thing is, I think, the forsakenness of the Son explains the darkness that we just talked about. The fact that he'd cry out, you've forsaken me, it explains the darkness. It's at the end of three hours of indescribable agonies where Christ has made sin for us. He becomes a curse for us. He's wounded for our transgressions. He's stricken by God and afflicted. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the intensity of this agony that's so great, he finally cries out. It was typical for those who are crucified to do one of two things. They would either utter loud voices and screams and rages and rebellion of what's going on, or the one who's crucified would merely have a whimpering resignation And Christ did neither one of those. He was amazingly quiet, at least from the recordings in the four Gospels, through this. But at this point, after the three hours of suffering the wrath of God are over, He amazingly then cries out purposely and loudly from the darkness of judgment. It's the fact that He's forsaken and cries out in this way explains why the darkness is there. But we probably need to explain why forsaken. What does that mean? Well, Christ's cry, my God, my God, is a cry of a man forsaken by God. Notice He doesn't cry out Father at this point. In other places from the cross, He cries out Father. But here He says, my God, my God. It's the only time that He he cries out in more of a generic, separate way, my God, my God, not the intimate, intimate my Father. And though we can't understand all of this, and I'm not going to try to explain all of this, there's a sense then that the Father has had to turn away From his son, because his son now has become sin and he's suffering the cup of wrath being poured out upon him. And the perfect fellowship of the son that he prayed about in John chapter 17 is somehow temporarily wrenched apart at this point in time. As the son senses the terror of his torment, of alienation from the father, not just the wrath being poured out, but maybe just as bad as now he's feeling the sense of alienation from the father whom he loves. There's nothing, I think, that we can know of. You can think about dark caves, about the torment of darkness, perhaps, but I don't know if there's anything that we can think of that would, that would give us an insight, except for maybe if you have someone in your life that, that you love dearly and above anybody else at all, and somehow something's happened with the circumstances of life to wrench that person away from you, and, and you miss them, or maybe it's a wrenching away because now there's, there's seemingly irreconcilable differences and there's angst between those that you hold the most dear. But it's nothing compared to what the Son and the Father are dealing with now. In their holiness, and now the Son becoming sin for us. It helps us to understand, though, that hell is separation from God. Hell is being forsaken by God. And Christ endures this so that we would forever be reconciled to God and never have to know that. It's easy and probably appropriate to think of the son's suffering at this point in time, but what about the father's suffering at this point? The father looking at his son suffering from his own cup of wrath being poured upon him and becoming sin for us. Last week we saw the agony of Mary as she looked upon her son, her earthly son on the cross, and that was a fulfillment of a prophecy that It'll be like a sword piercing your heart. How much worse when the perfectly holy Father looks upon the perfectly holy Son in this kind. There's some sense of alienation that we cannot understand. I think one thing to learn from this is, we touched on this last week. If our Father would go to such a length to redeem us to himself through his Son in this way... Imagine the love and the mercy and the grace and blessing that he will freely give to us, both now and for eternity. As you think of Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see, the love of the Father that would do this with his son for us, it has no limit for us, both now and for eternity. In my outline, I have the third point being the application exhibited. That's a really corny way of saying it, but I had to have a third something that would kind of fit. But the idea is, I think there's three applications that can be exhibited from this sense of the forsakenness and the darkness that Christ is suffering through. What can we learn, in other words, from this wrath absorbed? We've already hinted at this already, I think, is number one, and there's three things. Number one, what we see with this wrath absorbed is that it shows us the love and compassion of both the Father and the Son for us. We see the love and compassion of both the Father and the Son for us. This was done in part for us. See the love and the compassion of God for his people when we see the suffering on the cross to redeem us. See the Father's grief, see the Son's agony and grief, and then never doubt his love and care for you when you come to him through Christ Jesus. Number two, when we look to the cross and the wrath of God absorbed, we show, we're show we shown what God thinks of sin. We're seeing very graphically what God thinks of sin. I think we think lightly of sin. Oh, We know about human depravity. We know about God's holiness. And we pride ourselves with Reformed theology. But I, I think we often take sin far too lightly. Sin deserves the wrath and the curse of God. Do you understand that? We see the seriousness of sin here. We look to the cross and we see how serious sin is and how much we should hate it and want to avoid it out of love for our God and our Savior. And the easy tool to bring out of the tool belt is, would be the words from stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Tell me ye who hear Him groaning... Was there ever grief like this? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of man and Son of God. We see what God thinks of sin as His wrath is poured out upon His Son in our place for our sin. Thirdly and lastly, what can we learn from this wrath absorbed? It shows us that Christ's brutal death and atonement and propitiation was necessary. What we see in the cross was necessary. Christ's brutal death of atonement and propitiation was necessary. If the cross of Christ was not necessary, if there's some other way for salvation, then it would be ridiculous for the Father to do such a cruel thing to His Son in this way. It would be a ridiculous thing for the Son to choose out of love for His Father and out of His people to do such a thing. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Him. And there's no name in heaven or in earth by which one can be saved, the apostles say in Acts chapter 4. If there's any other way to salvation but through the cross... What a ridiculous thing and what a mockery of God and Christ this is if we understand the brutal death of Christ for our atonement and our propitiation. In Second Corinthians 5, we often read that God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And it must come through the suffering on the cross. to walk through the rest of verses 47 through 50 in Matthew chapter 27. I'd like to see this because I think with the rest of the verses we see a completeness of what's going on on the cross. It leads us through what actually happens in the order for the next two sayings, if you will. So if you look back at verses 47 through 50 in Matthew 27, there's something included here. Only Mark includes some of this, but I think it's important. It also leads us to how the next two sayings actually occur. In verse 47, some of those who stood there, when they heard that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed. Again, Christ said, I thirst, and offered it to him to drink. And the rest, however, said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And then Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And I think that is finished, and I commit my spirit into your hands, O Father. But what's going on in verses 47 through 49? What's this talking about Elijah? I think the best explanation of this is that in the original languages, when he says, Eli, Eli, that sounds a lot like the name for Elijah. And what we're seeing here is more mocking going on for our Savior, Elijah was a prophet who was taking it up miraculously. He did not die. He was just taken up in a chariot. And he is then also a prophet whom the Jews thought would return to introduce the Messiah. You see, you see Elijah and John the Baptist being mingled and intermixed with, with the thoughts of that. So the thought was this Elijah who didn't die, he was taken up, he was going to come and introduce the Messiah. I think what's going on here, they hear something that sounds like Elijah. They know it's not what he's saying. So you can think of those who'd be mocking. He said, said, Elijah, did you hear that? Maybe he's asking for Elijah to come and help him and to come and save him. Yeah, maybe let's just wait for Elijah to come and save him. Ha, ha, ha. But meanwhile, in the mocking, Jesus says, I thirst in fulfillment of Scripture, purposely to fulfill Scripture, but also then to to have something wet for his parched throat and tongue so he could cry out it is finished and then they mockingly give him sour wine maybe with vinegar mixed into it It would not taste very good but it was still meant to glorify god by then jesus next and i think in verse 50 of of matthew 27 when he cries out with a loud voice that's then it is finished and then matthew records that he yielded up his spirit which is where the last saying from the cross occurs so that's the completing of matthew's explanation of those things I want you to turn to John chapter 19, starting in verse 28. We saw this last week, I believe. We've seen the wrath absorbed by Christ, focusing on Matthew 27. Now we look at the redemption accomplished by Christ in John chapter 19. And the key phrase here is, it is finished. die, one word, it is finished. And in John chapter 19, we read, we'll start at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. I think that was the fifth saying. That was a fulfillment of Psalm 69. And then verse 28, now a vessel of, full of sour wine, which we saw in Matthew 27, was sitting there. And they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So then, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he cried out with a loud voice, the other Gospels say. He said, it is finished, Tetelestai. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And that word, Tetelestai, it is finished. Spurgeon says it's only one word, but it's immeasurable. Another author said in that one word is an ocean of meeting and a drop of a language. The word literally means the work is done. It's wrapped up. It's complete. It's perfected. It's accomplished. You could even say paid in full. It is finished. We could have multiple sermons on that one word. It is finished. I just have chosen four things four things to see four things that this represents what is finished I think we see the Lord's suffering is finished the Lord's work is finished the Lord's prophecies and shadows and ceremonial laws are are finished but then ultimately and obviously the Lord's atonement is finished first the Lord's suffering is finished remember that our Lord's whole life was a life of suffering there's there's the active obedience of Christ for our salvation to obey the law in its totality. But then there's the passive suffering of a life of suffering in our place that culminates in his suffering on the cross. From the moment he left his heavenly places of glory and light to the darkness of the cross that we're seeing today, there was suffering. He was in a poor family. A smelly stable was where he was born, where there's no room. He came to his own and they would not receive him. He preached in his hometown and they tried to stone him. He was homeless. There's no place for him to lay his head. He was despised and rejected by priests and kings and friends and family, even his physical, I should say, stepbrothers, even by his disciples. He was indeed a man of sorrows who was mocked, abused, and ridiculed, who thirsts, who knows agony, who knows forsakenness and darkness. He was a man of sorrows acquainted to grief, but all of that suffering is finished now for our Savior. It has finished all the suffering, all the shame, all the sorrow is now finished forever. And now he's at the right hand of the Father and he's waiting for his enemies to be his footstools. Again, reminding us that the cross was not a place for a victim. It's a place for a victor, our Lord Jesus Christ. But, If the finished means it's just his suffering being finished, then this would be a tragic waste of a life. It was just, oh, the suffering is over. But there's so much more. Secondly, the Lord's work is finished. The Lord's work is finished. There now can be rest. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, which is quoting from Psalm 40. We read, when he came into the world, speaking of Christ as incarnation, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will. O God, Christ came to do the will of the father and to accomplish the works and the word of his father. And he took a body and became man to fulfill the will of God, to do his works and to speak his words. It's interesting, in this text, it makes it sound like the offerings and sacrifices are not the thing, but obviously with Christ, his one-time sacrifice is the thing. He fulfilled the law's demands. We think of Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He fulfilled the law's penalties in our place, And he fulfilled the will of God perfectly in our place. And in John 17, before he goes to the cross, because this is so assured, John 17, when he's praying to the Father, he says, I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Christ's teachings and his deeds and his works are all done to perfection. His suffering is finished, but his works are finished. Thirdly, the Lord's prophecies and shadows and ceremonial laws are finished. Especially in the Gospel of John. When when John writes his Gospel, you should go back and read his account of the crucifixion from beginning to end. It's almost like there's a divine checklist going on there. It's almost like even when Jesus on the cross, it's like, okay, what, I have to do this, I have to say this, I have to do this. There's just such a pres- preciseness, a precision to all of the prophecies that are, are spoken of, and even the shadows and the types and the aspects of the ceremonial be- law being carried through. And if we went through all of the things we've discussed in the last three weeks, we'd be here far too long. This is the final Passover lamb. This is the sin offering finally. This is the scapegoat finally in Christ Jesus. Psalm 22 with all of the details are being fulfilled. Isaiah 53 and so on. It's interesting in John chapter 19 in verse 28 when John writes after this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he says, I thirst. That word for accomplished is the same word from which we get it is finished. So he's saying, I've finished the scriptures that are talking about me. I've finished the ceremonial law about me. It's all finished. It's accomplished. And through this we see that our Redeemer is sovereign. He's the sovereign Redeemer who atones for our sin. He is God. He's in control. And God's word and his prophecies will not fail. But lastly and obviously his suffering is finished his work is finished the prophecies and the shadows and types are finished in him but lastly and undoubtedly finally and purposely the lord's atonement is finished the lord's atonement is finished his death as a basis for our salvation is finished his redeeming work is our sovereign redeemer his atonement is finished it's finished and it's perfect we cannot add to it or take away from it else you'll mar and disfigured and destroyed it's done it's perfect Our Savior came to die. You think all the way back to Matthew 1, verse 21. The angel announced to his parents before he was even born that this child who will be born to you will save his people from their sins. And when the wise men came and brought him gifts to the newborn king, part of those gifts was myrrh, which represents suffering. Myrrh was used as a painkiller, but it represents death. Myrrh was used to address dead bodies before you'd bury them, and it happened to Christ's body as well. So this king came to save his people from their sins by dying for them. And Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 20 said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, which is an example to us. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die. And now it is finished. Now it is accomplished. His death is here. And it's accomplished what it's meant to do. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, we read, But this man, after he had offer, offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Do you get that? One sacrifice. It's done. Forever. There's no more. He sat down, that means it's done, it's finished. He's sitting down and we're at the right hand of God. He is God. He has the authority to say it's done. It is finished. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made as footstools, he's coming again to complete the job, if you will, to, to eliminate sin. And the writer of the Hebrews says, for by one offering, one offering, he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. A wonderful verse. By one offering, there's no more sacrifice for sin Any longer he's perfected forever means you're justified forever. You're made right with God when you come to Christ. through this one offering. Nothing can take that away. Those who are being sanctified, as you're being made more and more like Christ, that is guaranteed as well. And so the wrath of God for the sins of his people is fully drunk, absorbed, and quenched. Do you see the importance of the idea of limited atonement, maybe particular atonement sounds better because who wants to limit things? If Christ has truly suffered the wrath fully, there's nothing else to be poured out of that cup. It's completely dry for all of his people. And he says it is finished. It's complete. It's paid in full. If that means he died for every single human being, Who's ever lived? That means every single human being who's ever lived is saved. It's finished, it's done. There's nothing else to be done to that person. Christ's atonement makes no sense. Unless we understand that He died in particular for those he came to save. Now, are you part of that who he came to save will repent and believe? And yes, you are. And when you come to Christ, the great glory of that is you know it is finished. When Christ says it is finished, you can say it is finished. Indeed, there's no wrath waiting for me. Forgiveness is complete and free. Righteousness has been imputed to me. I have nothing else to desire. And I can serve Him with great freedom. In John's Gospel, I think especially... The cross is represented as an instrument of victory. A point of victory. Sometimes I think we have the impression that with the cross, it's like, oh, Christ died. But you know, the resurrection is coming. It's going to be okay. No, it's finished. He says it's finished with a loud voice. I think he shouts it out. It is finished. The victory is now. And the resurrection is guaranteed. Jesus dies with a cry of victory on His lips. Not a moan of defeat and resignation. It's a triumphant recognition of His accomplished work for which He came to do. He has finished suffering for sin. He's paid our full price as the sinless Savior who became sin for us. He's provided the perfectly righteous sacrifice that we might be be called righteous in His sight. He's bought us back from sin, death, and hell. It is finished. Redemption is sovereignly accomplished. So that leads us to the third part. If you turn to Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 44, we've seen the wrath absorbed by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've seen redemption accomplished. To die, it is finished. But now we see restoration assured. And I think we see this when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Which is subtle, but that's a quote from Psalm 31, verse 5. Even of his last words before his death, is a quoting of the scriptures. He's in charge, he's in control, he's sovereign. I think there's three things that we can see from Father into your hands, I commit my spirit. We see Christ's sovereignty, we see his submission, and we see the restoration of the Father and the Son. If you look at Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 44, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth. You're going to remember that line, because we've read it three times now, I think. Until the ninth hour, then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Luke says things, not necessarily in the order of how they occurred, but it's told there It was such an important thing, and we'll come back next week and speak about what happens after this. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, that's, it is finished! He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Luke goes on and speaks about the centurion at the foot of the cross at this point. We see the sovereignty of our Savior. We see his submission. We see the restoration. And First of all, when you think of the sovereignty and the control of Christ over all this, yes, he quotes from Psalm 31 when he says this. He's still doing this as he goes. But what you see in the way that Christ dies... It's a voluntary death. It's a willing offering. He's a victim in the sense that he's innocent, but he's not a victim in the sense that he's not in control, that he had no choice. It's a voluntary death. It's a willing offering the Son gives to the Father for his people. In John 19, we read that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In Matthew 27, it says he yielded up his spirit. That phrase, gave up his spirit, comes from a word that's not seen any place else in the scriptures. We don't know of it being any place in Greek literature. It's almost as if that the Lord, by his spirit, uses a word to say he gave up a spirit, his spirit to say this can only be done by the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the God man Jesus can give up his spirit. Who else can die voluntarily in this way? If you compare this to Acts chapter 7, verse 59, when Stephen is being stoned and he basically says, forgive them for they don't know what to do. And then Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. See the difference? Stephen says, receive my spirit. Stephen's spirit was taken. Christ gave up his spirit. And perhaps this is what Isaiah meant in verse 12 of Isaiah 53 when he says, Because he poured out his soul unto death, he gave it up. And only Jesus, the God-Man, can die this way. You remember what Jesus says in John chapter ten, in verses seventeen and eighteen. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Who can say that I lay down my life that I may take it up again? No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. And only Jesus, the God-man, can raise himself up from the dead. He said early on, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So it shows his sovereignty and his control, even in his own death, to give up his spirit, and he will take it back up again. I think also we see, not just his sovereignty, but we see Christ's submission, even in his death, He's the God-man. He's even showing his submission to the Father in his earthly realm of redemption. Even in his death, John says he bows his head, and then he yields up his spirit. It shows his submission to the Father's will, his obedience, even in death. the the order is he bows his head, then he gave up his spirit. He did not fall forward like he was unconscious. He doesn't fall forward, but he consciously bows his head with purpose to the Father. And he consciously then says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's a wonderful picture of the Son's submission to the Father even in his death as the God-man. I think Perhaps the most important thing seen here is it shows the restoration of the relationship of the son with his father. We saw earlier, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that phrase, bowing his head, comes from the same expression that we'd use in the scriptures for going to bed or laying your head someplace. And so we think of Matthew chapter 8, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The same word He's bowing His head before the Father. He had, he had no place to lay His head in His earthly ministry on earth. But now He can find rest by bowing His head and laying His head in the hands of His Father on the cross. And notice He calls God Father again. He says, Father, it's not my God, it's Father. Into Your hands I commit my spirit. He has a peaceful death trusting in his Father. Again, there's no resting place found on earth for the Son, but finally and ironically, he finds rest on the cross in the hands of his Father in his death. It's also fitting he finds rest because all of his work is done. All of his suffering is done and all of his work is done that symbolically points to now he finds rest which means in Christ Jesus all of our work is done and we find rest in Him alone, in His hands and in the Father's hands as well. And you see then that His relationship with the Father is restored. The restoration was assured. That was the name of this point. The restoration was assured. There's nothing that can separate the Father and the Son. Nothing could permanently separate the Father and the Son in any way. And That should be an encouragement to you because... It can be the same way with you. Through Christ Jesus, your restoration with the Father can be assured. And you can know his rest when you bow to Christ. In repentance and faith, his works are applied to you. His um, his righteousness is imputed to you. And you find rest in Christ and Christ alone. Christ who absorbed the sinner's wrath and accomplished his atonement and his death To restore the sinner's relationship with Holy Father. With the veil now torn from the top to the bottom. To provide bold access without fear any longer of condemnation. For the one who used to be an enemy of God. And now comes freely as an adopted son or daughter before the Father. And so we've seen the wrath absorbed by our Savior. We've seen redemption accomplished. And we see restoration assured. So in closing if you're outside of christ today it's because of your vile sin against holy god and you are condemned already to have the unquenchable wrath of holy god forever emptied out on you because of your sins which are transgressions against the nature and person and law of god outside of christ you are then god forsaken You're separated from the Father forever to be in outer darkness. And you must be reconciled to God through Christ. An over overused page in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, as committed to, to, to us to the world to, to the word of reconciliation, that we as believers are committed to the word of reconciliation in His place, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. And so if you're outside of Christ, we implore you on Christ's behalf, not on our behalf, but on Christ's behalf, to be reconciled to God. For God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the only way. If you're outside of Christ, you must bow before Christ who is God the Savior, God the man, God the Redeemer, for in him and him only will you and can you find rest. In the beautiful words of Jesus himself, come to me you who labor and are heavy heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come. If you're in Christ, if you've been redeemed by Christ, if your wrath has been absorbed by Christ and rejoice because it truly is finished. It truly is finished. He absorbed already the Father's wrath for your sins that you might be free. He became God forsaken on the cross for you who were rightly forsaken so you may never be forsaken by God. He willingly, willingly suffered the terrors of darkness so you'll forever be in his light. He knew the separation from his Father so you can be reconciled to God forever. His relationship to, the, to his Father was restored so that yours can be too. Christ rested in his Father so that in him you can forever find rest in him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you, O God, for your complete propitiation and atonement accomplished for us in your Son. And we beg of you that you would give eyes to see and ears to hear to those who are still condemned in their sin. Make them to see their sin and its nature and its righteous condemnation rightly and to hear and to receive the sovereign Redeemer's atonement provided for sinners that they might run and bow before Him unto salvation and be restored to you, O God. God, when... Christ's voice of love and mercy victoriously sounded from Calvary. It is finished. By your Spirit, you had Matthew record that in a sense you responded, it is finished indeed by splitting the rocks asunder, splitting the temple veil in two, and shaking the earth. So we ask you, Lord, that you would enable us by your Spirit to respond as well, praising you for the heavenly blessings that flow without measure from Christ the Lord. And the permanently fulfilled promises and defeat of the torment of death and hell that we might join the angels in heaven in praising Emmanuel's name, giving glory to the bleeding lamb who bled once and bleeds no more and who proclaimed it is finished. May we rejoice in that and proclaim it all the more. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things.